It's time to play like a jet with your host, Scott Mason. Play like a jet. What does that mean? Drops the throw, steps up, floats a bomb up the right seam, looking for Anderson. He's got it. They're not going to catch him. He's going to go the distance. Touchdown. Sam Darnold dials it up to Robbie Anderson. 92 yards. Bell into the middle of that line, and it's a touchdown. Big return for Crowder, 85 yards. Pass thrown, there was contact with the quarterback, and it's incomplete. They got pressure on Prescott. It was Adams who came blitzing in. He'll hit immediately when he got the handoff. You know that's <laughs> the Q-inator. Oh my gosh. Listen, thank you. From the TOJ Digital Studios, this is Play Like a Jet. My name is Scott Mason. You can follow me on Twitter at PlayLikeAJet1. And it's time for Midweek with Manish because it's Wednesday. So we welcome in the beat reporter and columnist covering the New York Jets for the New York Daily News, Mr. Manish Mehta. Manish, fine weather we're having, huh? Yeah, it's it's football weather, you know. It's, It's XFL weather, if you will. Speaking of the XFL, Pepper Johnson, oh my goodness, one week as a defensive coordinator and he's out. These XFL teams aren't playing around, huh? Uh, It's funny because, you know, Pepper is a really smart football guy, and I know that, you know, he had some differences of opinion with the defensive coaching staff when he worked for for Todd Bowles. So I don't know if there's a, you know, an interpersonal skill divide, (laughs) if you will, uh, when it comes to him. Uh, but in terms of football ideas, he's a really smart, smart guy. You know, I, I've had discussions with him, and I think he's got good ideas. And I, I think that perhaps, uh, you know, he, he uh, clashes with some of his coaching, uh, you know, cohorts. I, I don't know, but it is unusual <laughs> that an XFL team would fire you know, one of their coaches after the first game. Uh, you know, there was a time, if you remember, Scott, and I don't want to get on a tangent here, but there was a time when kind of everybody thought that you know he was being groomed by Bill Belichick to uh, ultimately be a defensive coordinator in the league. And uh, you know, I know that he believed uh, you know he'd be equipped to, to handle that job, but uh, for whatever reason, you know, uh, he's he's looking for a job again. An excellent defensive player, but his future as a coach is in limbo right now, much the way that I would say probably is with Antonio Cromartie. Antonio Cromartie was an intern on the Jets coaching staff, but boy, oh boy, do I assume he is not getting invited back after he unloaded on Adam Gase. What is going on with Antonio Cromartie? Because he held nothing back. Yeah, it was, uh, I guess it was last week when he was approached by TMZ. I think he was doing some kind of function down in Florida. And uh, he clearly does not believe that Adam Gase is the answer to the Jets' issues. And he made his opinion abundantly clear. He also touched on the fact that uh, he did not believe that Gase had uh, used Le'Veon Bell properly. Uh, You know, where have you heard that before? (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, uh, you know, he was... Something for Eric Bieniemy, the offensive coordinator in Kansas City, who a lot of people believe uh, should get an opportunity to be a head coach moving forward. But uh, he's the latest guy to speak out against Adam Gase. And, you know, I, I get people asking me uh, a lot, you know, why are you always critical of Adam Gase? And you know, my response is typically, well, there's people in and around the league who are always 
criticizing Adam Gase, whether it was most recently Antonio Cromartie, a former NFL player, former Jet, or whether it was Damian Williams, a former uh, player of Adam Gase's in Miami during Super Bowl week, saying that you know there were some communication issues after uh, Gase had promised Damian Williams that he would be a part of the future and then did not return Damian Williams' phone calls after Williams had season-ending surgery uh, entering his free agent season. So uh, just, just examples time and time again from people uh, who are former players, former coaches, current players, current coaches uh, that have a lot of critical things to say about the Jet head coach. And because of all of that, his name is always in the news. You know, the Jets haven't played a game in a couple months now. Yet Adam Gase was discussed, uh, you know, ad nauseum during Super Bowl week because of what Damian Williams said. And then uh, now most recently, Antonio Cromartie coming out and making critical remarks about the coach. So uh, clearly a lot of people, uh, uh, you know, in football who have their concerns or issues with the Jet head coach. Well, Manish, it's safe to say that Antonio Cromartie will not be joining the Jets coaching staff Anytime soon, especially with those opinions about Adam Gase and about the way Adam Gase used Le'Veon Bell, who also spoke to TMZ, but he sung a much more conciliatory tone in terms of Adam Gase than I think most people would have expected. Then again, he is still on the roster and he may have just been playing nice. Yeah, look, I think by and large, Le'Veon Bell has conducted himself really well in what has been less than ideal circumstances for him over the past year. Uh, maybe his one hiccup, so to speak, uh, was his gif of Michael Scott from The Office <laughs> after <laughs> a learning of what Adam Gase said uh, in his season-ending press conference when I asked Gase about whether he wanted Le'Veon back as the starting running back in 2020. Gase responded, as everybody knows, uh, you know, ask Joe Douglas, he handles personnel matters. Uh, but, you know, other than that one uh, post on social media, uh, Le'Veon has really handled himself well. And, you know, as you said, he also spoke to TMZ uh, about a week or so ago. And he said he had his exit interview, like every player does with the head coach, and it went fine. Um, and he said that there are no issues with Gase. Now, that's, that's probably the proper way of handling it. Uh, it's a standard answer, to be honest. It's not as if he was effusive in his praise for Adam Gase, because why would he do that when Adam Gase was the architect uh, of Le'Veon Bell's worst season of his career? So uh, Le'Veon Bell clearly isn't happy with the way that he was deployed. I don't think that should surprise anybody. That's not really breaking news. I think anybody in his position would feel uh, similarly, but uh you know, he is not going to trash his head coach publicly, uh, and I think he's gone through uh, enough issues with his employer through the years, uh, Pittsburgh, where he has learned, you know, as a professional, you have to, you know, take things, uh, you know, internally and, and not project them publicly if you are upset about a particular issue. So I think he's been really honest uh, for the most part. And, uh, you know, his, his biggest issue, frankly, in addition to not being deployed right, is being drug tested <laughs> seemingly every other week. But, uh, you know, this wasn't necessarily a ringing endorsement of Gase. I just think that in order to kind of smooth things over publicly, you say what you say if you're Le'Veon Bell and, and you kind of move on and, 
and hope things turn out well uh, with the Jets in 2020 if you're on the team because, as we, we can discuss later, there is no guarantee that he's on the team because the Jets, frankly, would love to move on from his contract. Let's talk about that now because Bill Barnwell from ESPN floated the idea of the Jets trading a fourth-round pick to essentially dump Le'Veon Bill's contract. Now, I think that would be malpractice in so many different ways because Le'Veon Bell's only got one expensive year left on his deal. After 2020, the Jets could walk away with very little cap ramifications. So for me, the idea of trading a fourth-round pick that they badly need to get a wide receiver or an offensive lineman or even an edge rusher or a corner is ridiculous. You bring Le'Veon Bell back. You upgrade the offensive line and you see what he can give you in 2020 and then you make your decision after that because if you want to move on after 2020, there's no problem. The idea of trading that fourth round pick, if it were to happen, and I'm not sure how realistic it is, seems like it would be more of an Adam Gase directive because he wants Le'Veon Bell off the roster so badly. Is there any truth to the possibility that this could happen, that the Jets could do some sort of Brock Osweiler type deal to get rid of Bell? Well, I think the notion of giving up a fourth-round pick uh, to dump Le'Veon Bell's contract is flawed. Uh, the Jets will not do that. Uh, as you mentioned, the way that the contract is structured is such that there is an out after 2020. So, in effect, this was a two-year deal. On paper, it was a four-year contract but uh, for $52.5 million. But for all intents and purposes, we're talking about – you know, a two-year deal that had, I believe, $27 million in fully guaranteed money. And uh, there's a $4 million uh, dead money charge after they cut him in 2020. And I would anticipate that they would cut him after 2020 if they can't trade him this offseason. They would save $9.5 million in 2021 as well uh, if they cut him. So this is a two-year deal, two years of fully guaranteed money. Uh, what was interesting to me uh, in the past couple weeks is the news that Todd Gurley and David Johnson, uh, two guys who were at the top of their game not so long ago as well, uh, are also available. Uh, now the Rams and the Cardinals haven't come out and you know, posted any kind of announcement that either guy is available, but there have been rumblings because of their lack of production and in Todd Gurley's case, his health as well. Uh, and both of their contract situations that both of those teams would like to move on as well. So I, I looked at it a month or so ago as if there was a team uh, who believed that Le'Veon Bell could be a piece to their puzzle to to potentially be a championship team in 2020, then perhaps the Jets could move him. And you know, I looked at I looked at the Chiefs. Uh, because as as great as Levy, uh, as sorry as great as uh, Damian Williams played in the Super Bowl, I think they're going to be looking for an upgrade. Uh, the Chargers are in flux. You don't know what's going to happen with Melvin Gordon. He's probably not coming back. Uh, and then there's teams who are uh, even the Texans, I guess, uh, could be looking for a running back. Uh, the Titans, depending on what happens with Derrick Henry. Uh, and then there's teams who are a little bit farther away from the the championship equation, like Tampa Bay, uh, who could be looking for a running back. Uh, Regardless, you know, I thought that if there was going to be a running back moved via trade this offseason, uh, it would be Le'Veon Bell, an accomplished guy. It would be Le'Veon Bell. But now there's actually uh, a market that's now saturated with uh, overpaid, uh, accomplished running backs uh, who are coming off of terrible seasons. 
because David Johnson and, and, and Todd Gurley are coming off of down years as well. And Todd Gurley is dealing with an arthritic knee issue. So even though he's the youngest of the three, he probably comes with the most risk. All three of these guys are going to be po- paid a boatload of money, whether it's $13.5 million for Le'Veon Bell, around $11 million for David Johnson, around 13 or so million uh, for Todd Gurley, or maybe it's even $14 million. Uh, I, I believe that Johnson, Gurley, and Bell, in whatever order, are the top three paid or scheduled to be, I should say, the top three paid running backs in the NFL in uh, 2020. Uh, and they're clearly not worth the money uh, based on their production. So I think it makes it that much more difficult to move Le'Veon Bell this offseason. Now, I thought it was already going to be hard, and you meant, mentioned a scenario where you know the Jets would give up a fourth-round pick to get rid of all the salary. I don't think that's going to happen. I think the best-case scenario for the Jets is to absorb some of the salary to make it uh, more palatable for a team to bring him aboard. But that being said, when you look at it realistically, he's owed $13.5 million. How much money are the Jets actually willing to swallow to move him? Are they going to swallow half that money and then you know, ask another team to pay 6 or $7 million, which, by the way, is still overpaying for a running back? Uh, and at that point, you know, I don't think it makes any sense. Why would the Jets... Uh, you know, do all of this to save six or seven million dollars. I think the smart move, frankly, would be to say, "Hey, you know what? We overpay for this guy. We're going to be on the hook for thirteen plus this year. Let's hope to get more out of him. We know we can do. He's got a track record of doing it. Hopefully, the head coach can understand that and and, and you know use him better and uh, things work out uh, you know much better for the player and the team this year. And then they can part ways because I see a very difficult time." Uh, you know, uh, seeing Le'Veon Bell as a Jet beyond 2020. I don't think it's going to happen. I think this is the last year for him. And if he plays well, that'll help everybody out. It'll help out Adam Gase. It'll help out Sam Darnold. It'll obviously help out Le'Veon Bell as well uh, when he's looking for another team after next season. But, uh, you know, the notion of giving up a fourth-round pick to to move on from Le'Veon Bell, uh, I don't think it makes much sense. I don't think the Jets think that makes, makes sense either. Play like a jet. Play like a jet. Manish, it's weird that a year after everybody was excited that the Jets got what many people believe to be a Hall of Fame talent at running back, they're looking to move on from him. And it's possible that he gets dealt in this offseason, or as you said, that they walk away after 2020. I think that's the more likely scenario just based on the economics of all of this. But it does bring to mind the idea of the Jets having to pay a quote-unquote Jets tax because... If you look at Le'Veon Bell, the Jets paid him more money than any other team offered. If you look at C.J. Mosley, the Jets paid him more money than any other team offered. So what are your thoughts on this Jets tax? Are they going to have to deal with this again this year in the offseason during free agency? Absolutely. I don't think there's any doubt about that. Uh, yeah, I was down in Mobile for the Senior Bowl a couple weeks ago, and uh, I talked to a lot of different people uh, on other teams. I talked to a lot of agents who are representing players who are going to be uh, free agents. And uh, the prevailing sentiment among the agents that I connected with was that they would never seriously consider signing with the Jets unless they got a sweetheart offer, unless the Jets broke the bank, unless they gave uh, you know, their client uh, a C.J. Mosley-type offer, a Le'Veon Bell-type offer. Uh, and, uh, and secondly, you know, you know, 
you know, without revealing you know, which agents I actually spoke to, uh, some of them were, were brutally honest with me and said that you know, they will use the Jets as leverage to raise the price for their client so their client can sign with a team that they actually want to send their client to uh, and where their client actually wants to play. You know, that's kind of a cutthroat way of looking at it, but I think you're naive if you don't believe that things like that happen with teams like the Jets. It's not solely the Jets, but because the Jets have uh, not been shy, you know, in terms of making big offers to players, uh, I think agents, savvy agents and savvy players, frankly, uh, understand that, uh, you know, they can use the Jets to drive up the price uh, so that their guy can go to a place that they actually want to play. Um, you know, you go back a year, and Anthony Barr had a lot of different reasons for why he backed out of the Jets' offer. If you remember, the Jets offered uh, $15 million a year, uh, and it looked like, I don't remember what night it was, but it looked like that Anthony Barr was going to be a New York Jet. It was actually reported uh, by multiple people, including myself, that Anthony Barr uh, had agreed to terms with the Jets. He slept on the offer. He thought about it. He woke up the next morning. He changed his mind. He took considerably less to stay with the Vikings. Now, he liked the Minnesota area. That was a big factor. I think uh, another factor, frankly, was that he did not want to play for the Jets. He did not want to play in this area. He did not want to play for this organization. So even when the Jets do pony up the most money, there's no guarantee that they're going to get their guy. And that's a reality that Joe Douglas is going to find out about. Now, he's a smart guy, so I'm sure he's you know, aware that this is a, a real possibility, but it's very different, you know, a month or so before free agency to think that it's a possibility and then to live through that experience when free agency begins because free agency is such a fast-flowing uh, time. You have to make decisions quickly. You have to make offers quickly. Now, look, you're going to have a, a, a good framework of what you're going to offer a particular player, and that player and his agent are going to have a good idea of where you stand because conversations are going to be had uh, a couple weeks from now in Indianapolis during the Combine. It's technically tampering, but every team and agent does it where you, you sit down, you, you discuss parameters of, uh, of you know ballpark, I guess I should say, of what you're willing to offer a particular player. You know, Some teams are a little bit more uh, detailed than other teams. I mean, they'll tell you what the offer actually is going to be when free agency begins uh, a week or so after the Combine. Other teams are, you know, a, a little bit more close to the vest where, you, you know, you might think that they're interested, but they're not really interested. They're just kind of trying to gauge the market for a particular position so they can strike fast uh, with the guy that they actually want when free agency opens. So, you know, teams handle it differently. Uh, but I think Joe Douglas is going to, you know, find out when free agency begins that there is no guarantee with this team. You could have a great offer on the table for a player, and you could think, there's no way that this guy's going to turn down this offer, and then he does turn it down because he doesn't want to play for the Jets. So uh, that that's something that would probably be disconcerting for uh, this new front office when free agency begins. But uh, you know, it's something that they're going to have to deal with. Uh, what I thought was really interesting, and maybe I'm alone in thinking that it's really interesting, but what I was really uh, what I really noticed during Senior Bowl week is that the Jets uh, actually brought both of their contract negotiators, Dave Sochi, who's their lead contract negotiator, and Nick Sabella, uh, who's the number two guy uh, in charge when it comes with, with contracts, both of those guys were on Mobile talking 
to agents to try to get a feel for what the free agent landscape is. Uh, typically, that doesn't happen. The Senior Bowl is for, for you know, the front office uh, scouts, by and large. And then there's head coaches that show up. Uh, you know, some teams actually send their assistant coaches, but I think that's becoming you know, uh, less frequent. Uh, the Jets actually don't send any of their coaches. Uh, Adam Gase you know, doesn't see much value in it. Uh, you know, I, I understand where Gase is coming from. I actually do believe, however, that Gase and Greg Williams should have gone down there. I don't think there's a need for the other assistants to go down there, but uh, I think that Gase, uh, or, you know, the defensive coordinator and a special teams coach, uh, I, you know, I guess I should correct myself because Brant Boyer was down at the Senior Bowl. But uh, you know, there there was no other staff coaching staff member, I believe, that was down there. But uh, no, anyway, uh, I went on a tangent. Uh, the idea of bringing your contract negotiator down to the Senior Bowl is unusual. Uh, I'm not saying that none of the other 31 teams did that. I don't think very many teams, if any, actually did that. I don't know every contract negotiator across the league, but I didn't notice anyone else, frankly. And I know the Jets are trying to get a head start to take the temperature of agents. And, you know, that's commendable. It can't hurt. I don't think it gives them any kind of marketing advantage, to be perfectly honest with you, because you can pick up the phone and uh, get a, you know, a, a sense of where an agent stands, because uh, this isn't a situation where face-to-face interactions are helpful, because this is, you know, about money, and it's about dollars. And, uh, you know, the fact that you, you know, met with a, an agent in person in Mobile, I don't think it's going to give you any kind of leg up when the negotiations actually begin and when all the other agents speak to teams a few weeks later in Indianapolis at the Combine. Because at the end of the day, money talks, and you know uh, I think that's what is going to carry the day in a free agency like it always does. Speaking of money carrying the day, we know that the Jets are going to have plenty of money, especially after they make a couple of moves here and there. And so for the third year in a row, we could see a bit of a spending spree From the people I've talked to, it seems like the general consensus is that Joe Douglas's priority this offseason between free agency and the draft, number one and number two in whatever order, is fixing the offensive line and adding outside edge rushers. It seems like they want to go the San Francisco 49ers model, which makes a lot of sense to me. Is that the vibe that you've gotten as well? And who are some of the guys that you think are going to be their top targets once free agency opens up? Well, look, it's not a secret that they want to upgrade the offensive line, and I think the suspects are well known. You know, the, the potential targets are, are well known. You know, whether it's Brandon Sheriff, uh, you know, Jan Conklin, uh, Joe Tooney, who I believe should be the Jets' number one target, and people will say, "Well, look, he's an interior lineman. Uh, why not? You know, go after a tackle." And I'm sure the Jets will go after tackles. I just think that when you look at this offensive line, uh, you know, they're going to want to bring back Alex Lewis. Uh, they traded for him, uh, you know, low investment, of course, but uh, they like him. But Alex Lewis comes with injury concerns. You know, Brandon Sheriff comes with injury concerns. Jack Conklin injury concerns. Joe Tooney does not. I mean, he's an Iron Man. He has not missed a game in his career. Uh, he barely has missed a snap in his career, and he was a second-team All-Pro this past season. Uh, what was impressive. Uh, when I looked a little bit closer at Tooney, was look he gave up one sack. Okay, that's great, right? He only gave up one sack. Uh, he did not commit a penalty this past season. And if you're a Jet fan, I think you're fully aware of how annoying it is when offensive linemen commit penalties. 
whether it's holds or pre-snap stuff. This guy, to me, is not a household name, but he is a guy that would be a rock-solid addition uh, along the interior. He actually has position flexibility uh, when the Patriots' uh, rookie tackle, Isaiah Wynn, was injured. I know in the offseason, Tooney worked at tackle. He has played tackle in college in the past as well. But, uh, you know, primarily, look, he's a guard. He can play center as well. Uh, so there is some position flexibility there. But if you're looking for a guard to plug in there, now he primarily played on the left side in uh, New England. Uh, but, you know, these guys can play either side. He's just a, you know, to me, he's one, he's a guy that will improve your offensive line without much fanfare. Like, he's a guy who's going to sign – People are going to say, okay, well, I've heard of him because he played for the Patriots. And frankly, maybe some Jet fans still haven't heard of him, even though he played for the Patriots. But uh, he's just a smart, solid hire, a smart, solid signing uh, for the Jets or for whoever you know ends up bringing him aboard. Uh, and then those are like the building block pieces, the pillars that the Jets need. They don't necessarily need flashy people, and typically offensive linemen are not flashy. And if he's an interior guy for the most part, he's absolutely not going to be flashy. He's not a tackle. So, uh, you know, you're not going to get much fanfare in that respect. But I would go after him. Uh, in terms of edge rusher, you're right. They need to to improve that area. And, you know, I give Greg Williams credit for you know, having uh, – done a pretty good job, uh, you know, given the circumstances, given some of the personnel, given some of the, the injury issues that you never heard about because he didn't like to talk about them. I got a lot of respect for him for that as well. And, you know, we have discussed that in the past, uh, how he has never, you know, made injuries an excuse. So, uh, you know, I I think that they need to make a strong push for Ngakwe, Yannick Ngakwe, the edge rusher in Jacksonville. This is a player who the Jaguars could have retained a year ago. In fact, Ngakwe wanted to return. He wanted to sign a long-term deal. Uh, I don't believe that Tom Coughlin uh, shared that sentiment. He wanted Ngakwe to play out the season, and uh, he did play out the season. And I, you know, I know that the Jaguars would obviously like to bring him back, uh, but it's not as if he'd be returning to a team that's close to winning a championship. So the Jaguars don't have that on the Jets. They can't say, hey, look, we're better positioned to win a championship than the Jets because are they? I, I don't think they are. I think, you know, these are two teams that are pretty far away. So, you know, they don't have that check, uh, you know, in their box. And, and Ngakwe is going to get a lot of suitors. So we just talked about this Jet tax. Well, even without the Jet tax, whatever team brings him board is going to sign him to a hundred plus million dollar deal uh, the full guarantee, the guaranteed money is going to be in the 60 to $70 million range. If you look at the comps recently at his position, he's going to turn 25 next month. So he's, a, he's just now entering the prime of his career. Uh, now, he's a, he's a game wrecker. Now, statistically, uh, from a sack perspective, he's good, but not great. If you look at his year-to-year, year-by-year sack production, 8, 12, 9.5, and, and then most recently, eight this past season, you know, it doesn't jump off the page, but if you watch the games, if you talk to people around the league, he affects the passer. He does get home. He, he, he hits the quarterback. He, he does everything that the jets need, uh, on the edge and don't have. So, 
you know, would I break the bank for him? Yes, I would, because as you said, look, they're going to have money. On paper, it's not much right now, but after they make these predictable cuts in the coming weeks, they're going to have in the you know eighty to ninety million dollar range in cap space. Uh, it's just a matter of how much cash are they willing to dole out? Uh, how much is Woody Johnson and Christopher Johnson willing to dole, dole out in all these contracts? Uh, because Ngakwe is going to get a lot. He's you know, you're going to have to dole out a lot of money. You're going to have to put money in escrow. He's going to be a big investment. But when you look at who was available in free agency, uh, you know, in any year, you know, there are flaws for every player. Otherwise, they wouldn't be hitting free agency unless there's a, a circumstance like this. Because look, I, I don't. I think that Ngakwe is a top-level talent. He's a top-level player, and because of the way that the Jacksonville Jaguars handled this situation a year ago, he's potentially going to be available this year. I don't know if the Jaguars are going to franchise him. If they do, then obviously, uh, you know, that uh, takes you into a whole different realm. But if he does hit the open market, he would be a guy that the Jets really should, uh, you know, put a full court press on. I mean, he's a guy that markedly would improve their defense and would improve their team for what it's worth i agree with you on both of those i think they should be the top two targets no question about it i like jack conklin a lot i'd certainly dip my toe in those waters and try to get a deal done there but the injury concerns are real and the injury concerns are even worse with brandon scherf i like brandon scherf a lot and i'd certainly be excited if they signed him but i think as you said, the fact that Tooney has been healthy for four years, he's 27 years old. The only worry, of course, is the fact that a lot of times when these guys leave the Patriots and Dante Scarnecchia, they regress a little bit. But we did see Trent Brown play very, very well after signing a big free agent deal. I think that Tooney's pass protection is very much needed as well. As you said, only one sack. But if you go back and look at the film, and Michael Nania went back and watched a ton of Joe Tooney because he was looking at Tom Brady's season. So while he was doing that, he looked at Joe Tooney and came up very, very impressed with the way that he holds up in pass protection against some of the best players in the league at the opposing positions. So I think he would be a fantastic ad. I'm not saying he's as good as Alan Fanica, but I think it would be sort of on par to when the Jets brought in a late career Alan Fanica. I believe Fanica was 31 years old at the time that he was signed from Pittsburgh, and it really helped turn things around. So if they could get Tooney and then maybe another tackle, that would go a long way in fixing the offensive line. And then obviously they have those picks in the draft. And then as far as Yannick Ngakwe, I am getting the sense that he's going to get franchise tagged. But if he doesn't, I think you have to go hard at him and you got to try to pay him whatever you have to pay him because, as you said, Manish, 25 years old in a couple of months, he's one of the best edge rushers in the league. The sack totals don't tell the whole story. If you take a look at things like pressures and QB hits, how often he's in the backfield, how often he's on the quarterback's case, he's consistently in the top 10 to 15. Now, this past year, he actually had a little bit of a down year in that regard. But still, for a guy that good to be available in the open market without having to give up any compensation and without having to use a high-level draft pick, I think that's an absolute no-brainer if he shakes free. I'm not so sure he's going to, 
But to me, in a lot of ways, he would be a unicorn when you consider the position that he plays in his age. He would be, to me, the edge rusher version of Kirk Cousins. Now, I think he's better as an edge rusher than Cousins is as a quarterback, although it's relatively close. But I just mean a guy in his prime at a position that almost is never available for a caliber player that he is. So if he does become available, I think that Joe Douglas should go right after him and try to pay him as much as he can. And there are people that will point out the Jets don't necessarily need more guys that are good against the run. They're excellent against the run as it is. They need somebody on the edge who can help unlock the other players on that defensive front. I think if you get somebody like Ngakwe, it really does a lot for Quinn and Williams. And obviously, if you bring back the two healthy inside linebackers and Avery Williamson and C.J. Mosley, that means that Quinn and Williams also won't have to stunt and two-gap as much. So you put all of that together, and you could be in the process of building something similar to the format that the 49ers put together, which is have a stout front seven that makes the quarterback's life hell. And then all of a sudden, things become a lot easier on the offense, too, when you have the offensive lineman that I assume they're going to add, whether it's through free agency or the draft, because that's how the 49ers really built their success. Control the line of scrimmage on offense and wreck the quarterback on defense. And so if Joe Douglas can push the Jets in that direction by adding guys like Ngakwe and Tooney, I think those would be great moves for them. How realistic is it, though, Manish, do you think? Because you talked about the Jets tax and you talked about the fact that these guys are going to have a ton of suitors. I believe Tooney and Ngakwe, if they hit the open market, are going to have multiple teams bidding for them. How realistic is it that the Jets would be able to find a way to get these guys considering how in demand they are and what you were talking about with agents potentially using the Jets for leverage? I will say one thing. Joe Douglas, A, is very good with offensive linemen and B, is a very convincing guy. From what I understand, Alshon Jeffrey was persuaded to take a one-year deal in Philadelphia despite multi-year offers elsewhere because Douglas is able to convince him that playing with Carson Wentz would up his value in the long term and that they might be able to be a Super Bowl contender. And of course, they did end up winning the Super Bowl and Jeffrey did end up getting his money. They had a pre-existing relationship from Chicago, so that helped a lot. But how much do you think that this is a realistic possibility that the Jets can actually get these top-tier free agents? Well, uh, it depends on a lot of factors. How many teams are they competing with? As you mentioned, Ngakwe, if he does shake free, uh, will be uh, heavily pursued uh, by teams just because, you know, as you mentioned, uh, an edge rusher coming into his prime you know, typically doesn't shake free. Uh, I, I'm with you. I, I have a hard time envisioning the Jaguars not slapping the franchise tag on him, but uh, you know, I can't speak to Ngakwe's feelings toward the team. Maybe he doesn't sign the tag. Maybe there's some issues. Uh, but I think, you know, I, if I were a betting man, I would think he would not be available on the open market unless you're willing to give up, you know, uh, whatever the, the compensation is uh, for a player who hits the franchise tag. But, uh, you know, if he did, for argument's sake, hit the open market, how realistic do I think the Jets – uh, you know, how realistic of an op- a chance do I think the Jets would have? Uh, it really just depends on how much money they're willing to give up. Uh, they're not taking discounts. You mentioned the Alshon Jeffrey example with Joe Douglas, and and Douglas did a really good job not only with Alshon Jeffrey, but bringing in a lot of veterans during that one particular offseason in free agency uh, that helped that team ultimately win a Super Bowl. It's a completely different environment with the Jets and where the Jets are right now in their process of, 
yes, they have a, a you know a young quarterback, a promising young player at that position, but I don't think that teams uh, or agents, I should say, and players are going to take any kind of discount to play with Sam Darnold. Uh, that's just not realistic. I don't believe that players are going to take any kind of discount uh, to play for the Jets. There, there's no reason. The Jets have not given uh, free agents any reason to want to come to play for them outside of money. Uh, you know, unless you like the New York, New Jersey environment, uh, you know, what is the appeal? What's the real appeal outside of money? Uh, because the Jets and Joe Douglas cannot promise a player uh, that they're going to be Super Bowl relevant over the next couple of years. I'm not saying that they won't. Who knows? You know, teams change quickly, and maybe in two years or three years, you know, they can be viable contenders. I, I don't know. But that's a hard sell if you're the general manager to a guy who has other options. And that's really what this comes down to. The Jets are going to be able to sign free agents. It's not as if people are going to say, oh, no, I'm, I'm never going to play for the Jets. Because if you have limited options, uh, that works towards the Jets' advantage. But if you're a guy who's got four or five uh, teams who are willing to pay a ridiculous amount of money for your services, the odds are that three or four of those other teams are going to be better positioned than the Jets, or at least on the same playing field as the Jets. So it's going to be very difficult to, for the Jets to have a leg up on a, a team where everything is apples to apples, and the only thing that's different is the Jets are paying more money, so go to the Jets. Uh, there are teams like that, you know, the Bengals, but the Bengals I don't think would play an outrageous amount of money for a particular player. Uh, maybe Washington. You know, I guess you could make a case for the Giants. So some people will say that the Giants are better positioned than the Jets. I mean, who knows? It kind of depends on your perspective. But there's only a few teams uh, that fall into that category. By and large, most of the NFL is better positioned than the Jets. So the Jets would have to pay. And you know, we talk a you know a lot about cap space. And I mentioned you know 80 to 90 million dollars in cap space. I think smart teams, smart. Uh, contract negotiators, cap guys, can figure out ways to manipulate the salary cap. So I, I think a lot of that is overrated, and I know we've discussed that in the past as well. The way I look at it is you know, $80-plus million is a lot of cap space. That's all I need to know, you know as a fan and really as a general manager. You, know, you get into the details, but the bottom line is that cap space won't be any kind of obstacle for the Jets. The, the reality is how much is ownership willing to pay in cash? Because if you have fully guaranteed money that you're going to dole out over time, you have to put that money in escrow, and the Jets' ownership has to sign off on that. Woody Johnson, Christopher Johnson, you know, they're money guys. They have to be willing to say, yes, we're going to pony up this amount of money for these three players or these four players who are going to cost a lot. Um, you know, a lot of that is out of Joe Douglas's control, just like a lot of that was out of Mike McCagnin's control, just like a lot of that was out of John Idzik's control, just like a lot of that was out of Mike Tannenbaum's control. You, you know, as a general manager, you can only recommend to your boss, in this particular case, Christopher Johnson, that we need this player. And this amount of money that we're going to offer him is a fair amount of money, uh, you know, are we, oh, quote-unquote, overpaying? Yes, but that's the reality of doing business if you work for the Jets. The Jets have an image problem. Uh, there's no sense in fighting that during the free agency period. You're not going to get in a debate if you're Joe Douglas with Christopher Johnson 
over whether the Jets have an image problem or why the Jets have an image problem. Now, that's for another day. That discussion is for another time. The reality is that that is the case. And because that is the case, savvy agents and players are going to use that to their advantage to try to squeeze out as much money as they can from the Jets. So if you're ownership, if you're Woody over in England, if you're Christopher in New Jersey, you have to understand that and you have to you know, make a decision. I mean, are we okay with you know, handing over this amount of money? Do we have the resources to do that? Do we, ha- uh, do we have that kind of cash laying around? And those are questions that the Johnson brothers have to answer and they're the people in charge of you know their their finances have to answer because uh, Joe Douglas can only do so much, you know Adam Gase can only do so much in saying, hey, I want this player. I think this player can help us uh, achieve our goal uh, and because of A, B, and C. And so those two guys, Gase and Douglas, can only do so much. Uh, they can only recommend that the money will is a good investment, and then ultimately the Johnson brothers have to sign off on that. And I can't tell you. You know, a month or so uh, before free agency, whether the Jets are going to be willing to do that. You know, they can, in in theory, say, "Look, money's not going to be an issue." And frankly, money wasn't really an issue last year. And I give Christopher Johnson and Woody Johnson credit for that. They did pay Le'Veon Bell a lot of money, uh, you know, more money than anybody else was willing to to offer. Uh, in reality, uh, a lot more money than what any other team was willing to offer. So, you know, I think you know, based off of that. You know, small track record. I don't think it's fair to say that the the Jets ownership is cheap any in any way. But are they willing to do it again in year two? Uh, you know, with uh, Adam Gase, are they willing to to pay again? They did it last year. Are they willing to do it again? And that's a question that I can't answer right now. Are they willing to pay Rick Dennison though? That's the question. It seems like the answer is <laughs> no. Talk to me a little bit about what's going on with this because this is kind of a confusing story and you've been at the forefront of it in terms of reporting all the ins and outs. Tell me the specifics here because, like I said, it gets a little confusing. Yeah, you know, when I wrote the story last week, I tried not to bog the reader down with the numbers because you can get paralyzed when you think about the numbers and when you think about what offset language is. I think a lot of fans don't quite understand what that even means. Uh, but generally speaking, uh, Rick Dennison was fired after the 2017 season as the Bills' offensive coordinator. He had two years remaining on his contract at a little under two million dollars. You know, it, it was under two million, but for purposes of, of this conversation, let's call it two million dollars uh, in each of those final two years of his contract. And uh, there was offset language in that contract, so. In essence, uh, without confusing too many people, if Rick Dennison got another job in 2018, which he did with the Jets in this particular case, uh, whatever the Jets paid him would offset the obligation that the Bills uh, were set to, to owe him. So the Jets ended up paying him uh, under half a million dollars, so let's just call it a half a million dollars. Uh, that means that in 2018, the Jets were paying uh, Rick Dennison a half a million dollars. The Bills were paying Rick Dennison $1.5 million. So Rick Dennison was getting his $2 million just from two different sources in 2018. The same would have held true for 2019. Uh, the Jets agreed to a four-year deal with Dennison because the Jets wanted Rick Dennison. Rick Dennison, I think, would have been perfectly content 
sitting at home collecting his $2 million in 2018 and 2019 that he was owed from the Bills without coaching. Uh, now, I mean, he's a coach at heart, so maybe he, 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 you know, he wanted to coach. But the reality is that if he could not find a job, he would have gotten that money. The Jets pursued him for one particular reason. If you remember, they had just fired John Morton. They hired Jeremy Bates to be the new offensive coordinator. Jeremy Bates worked with Rick Dennison uh, in Denver. They subscribed to the same offensive philosophy, the same blocking scheme, zone blocking. Uh, NFL fans know the Mike Shanahan school of zone blocking. So when they hired or promoted, I should say, uh, Jeremy Bates to be the offensive coordinator, he wanted Rick Dennison. Rick Dennison was available now. He wanted Dennison to be the offensive line coach and the run game coordinator. So the Jets pursued Dennison. If you're Rick Dennison, you know, why would you want to come to the Jets? You know, they're, they're a losing team. Uh, you don't know exactly what the future holds for the general manager, frankly, and the head coach. So the Jets had to incentivize Rick Dennison to come to work for them. And they did that by coming to an agreement, and when I say they, I mean Dennison and his representatives and Mike McCagnan, who was the general manager at the time. The Jets and McCagnan specifically incentivized Dennison to come uh, to, to work for the Jets by structuring a deal uh, that had a lot of verbal agreements in it and an understanding that, look, we're going to pay you roughly half a million dollars the first two years of the contract. You're going to get a million dollars guaranteed in the last two years of the contract. So when I when I say guaranteed, uh, it does not expressly say guaranteed in the contract because you cannot. Uh, it would not have been approved by the league. And without bogging the listener with too many details, uh, essentially what the Jets and Dennison did was come structure a, a four-year contract in which he was going to get a million dollars on the back end of the deal. It had, quote-unquote, no offset provision, which is a de facto guarantee. It's not exactly a guarantee, but the understanding, and this, I think, is the most important point of this entire issue, the understanding was that the Jets would give Rick Dennison the million dollars, uh, whether he was fired, whether he retired, whatever happened. He was going to get a million dollars. It was just not going to come until after the first two years of the deal. So Rick Dennison thinks to himself, okay, that makes sense. I'll do it. Uh, unfortunately, Rick Dennison gets fired, as does Todd Bowles, after one season, the 2018 season. So now, you know, there's a new head coach coming in. Dennison is more than happy to work for the new head coach. When the Jets figure out that they want to hire Adam Gase, I don't think it was official, but uh, – they, they knew that that was the direction they were headed. Uh, Dennison wants to know, am I going to have a job or not? Because you know, Scott, covering the NFL, this coaching carousel stuff happens really quickly. And a lot of assistant coaches are in limbo. Uh, sometimes they're released from their contract. They're fired along with the head coach. Uh, and sometimes they're in this really odd stage where the team retains them. And they say, well, you just sit tight. You know, we got to figure out who our next head coach is going to be, and that head coach is going to decide whether you're going to be a part of the staff. Meanwhile, all these other head coaching jobs and assistant jobs are being filled uh, around the league, and you're sitting there waiting, waiting, and waiting until the team that you're currently employed by hires a new head coach. 
So when the Jets had an understanding that they were going to hire Adam Gase, you know, they ultimately decided that Dennison was not going to be a part of Gase's staff. Gase is obviously well within his right to do that. It's not a, a scheme that he subscribes to. Or he wanted to go in a different direction, find a guy who had different principles along the offensive line. Uh, it's all well and good. That's that's fine. So the Jets give Dennison permission to look for another job. He looks for another job. Uh, he gets an offer from the Minnesota Vikings. He comes back to the Jets and says, okay, I have, a, I have an offer from the Minnesota Vikings. And uh, thinking all along, I'm going to get this million dollars that I'm owed from the Jets because I, you know, the Jets paid me peanuts in 2018, well below market value for someone of his experience. Uh, the Jets then throw a curveball at Rick Dennison and say, "Well, on second thought, we don't want you to, we don't want you to leave. You're not going to be a part of the staff. However, we want you to be a scout." Now that to me is disingenuous because the Jets had no intention of of putting him on the scouting staff. They were essentially offering him a job that they knew he would not take and that they knew would prompt him to quit. And if he does quit, he forfeits the million dollars that the Jets owe him. And you could look at it from the Jets' perspective and say, well, look, he's getting another job offer that pays him more money from the Vikings. What's he complaining about? He's still going to get paid. But what that does is ignore the spirit of the agreement between the two teams. And the spirit of the agreement was that he was going to work for peanuts in 2018. And when I say work for peanuts, he was going to get the same amount of money he was always going to get because he was going to get part of the money from the bills. But the Jets were going to pay him peanuts. And the Jets were getting a, an offer and a deal that they wouldn't otherwise get unless they had promised this money on the back end to Dennison. But, and this is a big but, there's nothing in the contract that says that the money was quote-unquote guaranteed. It was always understood that the money was guaranteed. There was no offset language uh, for the million dollars, which is a rare thing for assistant coaches. Uh, no offset provisions are only given to head coaches from time to time, but not not for assistant coaches. So everybody in those discussions, Rick Dennison, Rick Dennison's camp, Mike McCagnin, they all were well aware of what the what the agreement was. And the reason that it was structured the way that it was structured is if you cannot say in a contract – yeah, you know what, we're going to try to circumvent the rules by you know, promising this money on the back end because the NFL would not approve that contract. So the understanding all along was that if Dennison was fired or retired in the first two years of that deal, he would get the $1 million. Uh, if he decided to keep coaching after those first two years, the Jets would renegotiate the deal to reflect whatever the market value is for someone with his experience and his position, offensive line coach slash run game coordinator. Uh, however, when Todd Bowles was fired, everything changed. Mike McCagnin has subsequently obviously been fired, and the Jets are sticking to the letter of the contract. And you can say, hey, what's the problem here? The Jets aren't doing anything wrong. They're sticking to the letter of the law. And that is, I believe, how the Jets are approaching this. And that's a very cutthroat way of doing it, and technically – they're not doing anything to break the contract. And I think that is an important part because you look and look at this at two, you know, in two different ways. You can say the Jets aren't doing anything to break the contract. On the flip side, you can say the Jets are doing something nefarious because they're breaking the spirit of the agreement. And they're essentially screwing this former employee out of a million dollars when he had to be convinced to come to work for you. And I spoke to 11 people around the league, including general managers, front office executives, 
and agents. And 10 of the 11 thought it was an underhanded way of doing business. That even though it wasn't illegal per se, it was a Jets move, I believe one person told me, one general manager told me. And that was the sentiment that I got. Now, if I had talked to 11 people and they said the Jets are, and all 11 guys or 10 of the 11 or the majority of the 11 said the Jets are doing nothing wrong, uh, you know, they should have been more detailed. When I say they, I mean the Denison camp should have been more detailed in the contract provision. Then I would have said, okay, this is how people around the league feel. But that's not the feedback that I got. And this notion of dangling this scouting position was really a slimy move in the eyes of a lot of people around the league. Now, you can look at this from the flip side as well and say, well, there's a reassignment clause in his contract. So the Jets were well within their right to dangle this change from coach to scout because in the contract it says that you can be reassigned. So if you're Rick Dennison, you should have taken that, the, that language out of the contract. You know, and, and look, that's one way of looking at it. And the people who believe that aren't necessarily wrong. I just think, you know, when you're breaking the spirit of the agreement, uh, when you're going against your word, people will notice that. Other coaches around the league who have options will notice that. You know, we talked about free agents who have options. Uh, I think the same goes with coaches. If you're a coach and you have you know, two or three teams who are interested in you and the Jets are one of those two or three teams – and you see how they're embroiled in a year-long stalemate and grievance with a coach that's going to go to the commissioner's office if it doesn't get resolved in the coming weeks. If you're that coach with options in the future, why would you want to come to the Jets? If the Jets are willing to screw that coach, who's to say that they're not going to be willing to screw you if circumstances change in the future? So that's why I think that this is an important story. Uh, you know, these guys are all rich. The team is obviously rich. Uh, I don't think uh, Rick Dennison is hurting for money. But I don't really think that is why there's value in this story. I think that there's value in this story because the Jets are going against their word, and they're going against an agreement that both sides understood at the time. And just because it wasn't written in the contract, because it couldn't have been written in the contract, otherwise it would not have been approved by the league, doesn't mean that the Jets are doing are, are in the right and all that being said, Scott, I've talked for a long time here, but all that being said, if this does actually go to the commissioner's office for a hearing, I don't believe that the commissioner will actually hear this. Uh, you know, Typically, the commissioner, when, when instances with coaches come up uh, to his office, he usually says, you know, let's just hammer this out. This is ridiculous. You guys should just hammer this out before it goes to a hearing because it's an arbitration hearing. And in an arbitration hearing, you have to pick a side. There is no middle ground. It's either Rick Dennison is going to win or the Jets are going to win. And I think when it comes with coaches, the commissioner doesn't typically like to you know, get his hands involved in that. So he, you know, he goes back to both parties and says, hey, look, can you guys just hammer this out? But it's been a year now. Rick Dennison has been gone for a year, and it has not been hashed out. So he will, he meaning the commissioner, I believe will have uh, a designee who will you know, oversee the case if it comes to that. And if it does come to that, I do believe that the Jets would win the case. Now, they're going to get a lot of bad PR because of the way they handled it. But because the Jets aren't breaking the letter of the contract, I do not believe that they would lose this case. I could be wrong. I'm not a lawyer. But, uh, you know, just talking to people around the league, I think the Jets would win the case. 
I just think it's silly that there hasn't been some kind of settlement, uh, you know, to this point. Uh, you know, you got two people who, two sides who believe they're both in the right. Uh, I, I think that the Jets are not breaking the contract per se, but I don't believe that they're in the right. And even if and when they do win this hearing, I still don't believe that they're going to be in the right. Uh, I, I think that if you give your word, you have to stick to it. And that's really the, when you reduce it to simplest terms, that's really what it comes down to in my mind. Uh, we'll see how, you know, ultim- what ultimately shakes out in the coming weeks. Because again, if I think if it goes to a hearing, I don't believe that Denison will win uh, because the Jets, again, are not breaking the contract. Uh, they are, however, breaking the spirit of the deal. And to me, that is uh, something that is, patently absurd when you consider that this is a multi-billion dollar organization and they're in effect squabbling over a million dollars. Amazing that a multi-billion dollar organization could get into such a heated, contested contract dispute over a million dollars, but that's where we're at right now with this, so it'll be interesting to monitor it and see where it goes from here. Manish Mehta of the New York Daily News, thanks so much for coming on. As always, really appreciate it. What do you got cooking over at the Daily News right now? Well, we've got the Combine coming up in a couple weeks, and I'll be in Indianapolis for the week. And uh, there's obviously going to be a lot of discussion uh, behind the scenes uh, with impending free agents, agents, and and teams. So you get a better understanding of who the Jets may or may not be interested in. Uh, You do have to be careful, though, because as I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, a lot of times teams are trying to gauge what uh, the market value is for a premium edge rusher or a premium guard or a premium tackle. So they want to get a sense for what uh, agents are looking for, for their clients at a particular position. And then the Jets can huddle up uh, when they get back to New Jersey after the combine and say, hey, look, this is what player A is looking for. This is what player B is looking for. This is what player C is looking for. Uh, you know, at the tackle position, for example. Uh, so let's formulate our plan of attack. We like, you know, we like all three guys, but, you know, this is the ballpark it's going to cost for each of these guys. So you do have to be careful. Uh, you know, I know after uh, a week or so after the combine and in the run-up to free agency, there's going to be a lot of stories uh, about the Jets and other teams being, quote-unquote, interested in player A or player B, uh, and they'll get that information because uh, the reporters will get that information, I should say, because they'll find out that there was a dialogue or discussion between the agent and the team. Uh, you just have to be careful in trying to determine whether that's the, the main target for the Jets uh, or if that's just uh, the Jets doing their homework and trying to gauge what the market is for a particular position. Go ahead and follow Manish on Twitter and read his work in the Daily News. And for the latest and greatest in New York Jets podcasts, you know where to go. It's Turn on the Jets Digital and turnonthejets.com.